Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of Your Law Podcast. This is your host, Ozzy V, and I am merely the host, but with me as always on this podcast is the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, Andre Verdun, attorney at law. Kind of gave you doing, Ozzy? title. I'm good. How are you doing today? You know, I'm not even going to try to fake it. Uh, I'm uh, a little brokenhearted, a little bit uh, just worried about what the recent news means for not only my industry, the legal industry, but for this country as a whole. Right. And obviously referring to the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, this episode is about Proposition 21 continuing in our California Proposition series. But before we move on, I think it's important that we give we have a little bit of time just to talk about now while this is not uh, this isn't intended to be a political view but rather this is a law podcast and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a judge on the Supreme Court the highest court of the land so it is relevant that I feel that we uh, take a few, some time to discuss it so on the passing and what this could mean what what are your thoughts well, I think what it means is quite clear. Um, there was a, a a really transformative moment when it comes to uh, the Supreme Court, but it happened in Washington. And that's when um, Justice Scalia passed away. And at the time that Scalia passed away, the, the president at the time was, of course, Barack Obama. And during the 200 years that uh, this country's existed, we followed the rule in the Constitution that the president gets to choose the replacement for the Supreme Court justices when they pass away or they retire. Of course, Mitch McConnell stood up and said, I'm going to make it my goal in life to make sure that you never get to fill that seat. And because Mitch McConnell and the Republicans had control of the Senate, they were actually successful for the first time in American history preventing a president, a sitting president, from choosing the replacement on the Supreme Court. He chose someone, but the Republicans would not even set a hearing to confirm or deny that pick. And, and even a refresher, though it, this did happen in March of that year. March correct. 2016, Merrick Garland was selected. However, uh, continue. Yeah, so uh, in, in March he was selected. Of course, the election was in November. Barack Obama was not seeking re-election because he had been termed out. So obviously in January of that year, there would be a new president. It would either be Trump or Clinton. And uh, so they broke away with tradition and the way that we've operated for 200 years. And they said, we are not going to put this candidate up for a vote. And of course, their purpose behind it was it's an election year. And we want the voters to choose which president is going to get that honor. Well, the voters already did. They voted for Barack Obama. He was elected. And it was his right to choose a nomination. And it was the obligation of the Senate to confirm or deny that pick. But the election came, and uh, I think to the horror of uh, most fair-minded individuals, the election went to Trump. And, you know, I want to mind saying controversial fashion. And there was no effort by the Democrats to challenge the Senate's refusal to do an up-or-down vote on uh, the Obama's choice. So... What happens is, is Trump puts his own nomination up, and when the Senate refuses to uh, confirm him by the 60-point majority that's typically required because of the filibuster rule, the Republicans, again, breaking away with 200 years of tradition, repealed the filibuster rule so only a simple majority would be required to fill that seat. And then, uh, of course, Justice Gorsuch was confirmed to the Supreme Court bench based on that decision or based on that repealing of the filibuster rule. And of course, Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy, uh, who was uh, at the time the moderate swing vote on the Supreme Court. And it created a five to four conservative ma uh, majority on the Supreme Court. So fast forward to uh, September 2020. Not only is it an election year, it's weeks before the election. We're not talking about March before election year. We're talking about September before election year. And with the 
passing of Justice Ginsburg, if you were to, to use the new tradition created by the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, the one he created uh, not even four years ago, it's an election year. And the voters should choose who's going to pick the replaced re replacement for the justice during an election year. Of course, he says, that's not going to happen. I'm going to have uh, a nomination voted on uh, before the November election. So we're in, uh, it's today, we're September 19th. Of course, she passed away yesterday, so it's September 18th. So with only about two months before the election, we're going to have a vote. Uh, and of course, we know what the result that vote's going to be on the replacement of, of Justice Ginsburg. And based on the ultra-political uh, choices that Trump's already picked, the, the people that put political ideology over legal ideology, which Gorsuch and um, uh, Kavanaugh have done while on the bench, and who, what, exactly what Alito has done the entire time he's been on the bench since uh, George W. Bush has put him there. So you have this segment of the Supreme Court that has been chosen these really vitriolic political times who are making these legal decisions really based on political ideology. And then, of course, you have Democrats continuing to say, well, we want to stick to tradition. We want to continue to follow uh, the constitutional norms. And because of their own willingness to break away from those chains, and, and I hate to say it that way, that uh, they're, they're chained by law, they're chained by constitutional requirements. But the problem is, is they're fighting against Mitch McConnell, who isn't. He doesn't care about law. He doesn't care about constitutional requirements. He doesn't care about history. He doesn't even care about ethics. He doesn't even care about doing the right thing. All he cares about is winning. And you cannot continue to play politics of old when the people you're playing with are outright criminals, like mm -hmm. is Trump, like is, in my mind, people like Mitch McConnell who continue to uh, ensure that Trump gets his agenda uh, accomplished. So, yeah, we're in a really dark time, in my opinion. And, and it's, I think, exacerbated by the fact that if you turn on any news channel, you see the riots in the streets in Portland, you see the riots in the streets in, in Minnesota. And what is the precipice of all of that? If you, I mean, I, I know there's some criminal uh, elements to it because there's opportunists, and I'm not talking about them. They're criminals. There's, Criminals are always going to find a way to get involved in anything that's happening that's transformative and, and make money off of it. So that aside, these are people who are saying the only way that they know how, we have no justice in our court system because police officers continue to kill unarmed black people and unarmed minorities and get away with it. Because the Supreme Court invented a doctrine called qualified immunity that isn't written into any law, and it's being pushed by a conservative swing, uh, wing of our, uh, of our court that always talk about you have to have a textual basis for uh, the things you do. They had no textual basis for qualified immunity, but they invented it to basically make it impossible to sue police officers when they commit violations of people's constitutional rights that— no one disputes is a violation of the constitutional rights of the person who's been uh, injured. So, you know, as a person that attempts to bring law lawsuits against police officers who arrest people lawfully or who tase people unlawfully or who uh, do us, you know, I'm not even going to get into the more the, mo the most victimized of my clients uh, at the hands of police officers. But then you get these cases before the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, not the Supreme Court, but the uh, the federal courts who are following Supreme Court authority who are saying, hey, I'm sorry, there's no doubt that your client had their rights violated, but based on this uh, U.S. Supreme Court authority that keeps reversing our refusals to grant qualified immunity and grants it, we cannot let you go forward. And so that combined with the fact that there's no sense of urgency in Washington, there's no sense of urgency in the state Congresses around the, the, the different states to give these people justice. And so without a sense of justice in the court system, without a sense of justice in Washington, and without a sense of justice out of the state congresses that are, you know, have the power on a local level to give that, people are going to the streets and they're rioting. 
And so when you think about the uh, legacy of Justice Ginsburg and how much it was important for her to bring fairness to the table and to ensure that the courts carried out its obligation to protect people against the government, and then you take her away from the equation and you replace her with someone who doesn't have that same sense of fairness, who doesn't really care about people and and strengthens the uh, portion of the court that puts corporate money over people, who puts corporate power over people, who puts law enforcement over people, who puts government agenda over people each and every time. When you take her out of the equation, you replace her with someone that wants to further that agenda. What do you expect to get, Ozzy? Like, really, what do you expect? You think the people in Portland are going to say, okay, we're going to put down our picket signs, we're going to get out of the streets, we're going to go home and just be okay with it? Because I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that that coupled with the unfairness of how we got to this day, you know, Mitch McConnell could have allowed a vote on Obama's pick. There is no doubt he would have got chosen because so many Republicans that came out prior to Obama picking him saying that he was a qualified jurist and should be on the Supreme Court. And that's why he chose them. And then the election having been won, you know, he still would have got two other choices. And then there wouldn't be no issue. You know, there wouldn't be no need to change the filibuster rule. Justice Gorsuch would have got an up and down vote, assuming he was the one that was chosen to replace Kennedy instead of uh, Kavanaugh because, you know, Gorsuch was already in the Supreme Court. But this decision that we must always win and that the Democrats must always lose and that corporate greed must always win out over human beings and how police officers must always win out, out over uh, a person who's been abused and mistreated by police. That motive that's been carried out by the Supreme Court that will be carried out with greater force going forward will not serve to fix any of the issues we're having in this country. And they're just going to get worse. And I do believe that these issues will be the collapse of this nation. And I think that when it all comes back, it's all going to come back to Mitch McConnell and his decision not to sit Mary Garland, because the Supreme Court has always been the non-political of the three branches. Their obligation has always been to apply law and not care about the outcome. And they don't do that no more. And with these highly political choices, when, you, when you're when you taking people who are in the Court of Appeals oftentimes, and you're making them uh, superior, uh, Supreme Court judges, because you want their political ideology to be written into those legal opinions, then you're going to continue to divide this country because we're no longer going to have the ability to say, okay, politics aside, we need someone to tell us what the law is. You're going you're gonna to go to that, that branch and you're going to get a political opinion, which means that you got nine unelected people in row ultimately deciding the political agenda of this country. And that is a really, really sad outcome. Before we move on, though, I don't know if this is me just seeming too optimistic, but you had mentioned before about the possibility of the amount of justices on the Supreme Court be expanding to. 11 or or more yeah so 14 as i as i suggested (laughs) look i don't think that this is uh gonna happen again democrats don't play the type of politics that would require it but Mm. during the you know everyone knows about the great depression and following the great depression fdr was elected to the presidency and he started to pass a series of laws that were intended to remediate the harm done by the Great Depression. And the Supreme Court at the time, and, and probably rightfully so, were striking down many of these laws with 5-4 decisions saying that the president was exceeding his powers and, and really Congress uh, was exceeding their powers and passing laws that were not constitutional. And um, FDR came up with, out of frustration, came up with a plan, they call it the court packing plan. And he wanted to expand the, the Supreme Court, I believe, to 14. And his plan, and I think there was also the ability to replace any judge that re- reached a certain age. So actually, there could be more than 14 uh, Supreme Court judges on the uh, Supreme Court. But it would allow him to immediately sit more judges on the Supreme Court. And then the theory being FDR would, would be able to seat these uh, new judges who would then uphold his statutes 
and not interfere with his uh, desire to pass these laws that he felt would remediate these economic hard times. So what happened was, what came out of that was what we call, at least in law, I'm not sure you know this is used in everyday nomenclature, but it's the switch in time to uh, save nine. One of those uh, nine judges started switching their opinions and had a change of heart, so to speak, and started upholding all of FDR's New Deal laws. And mm-hmm. so because FDR uh, started winning, uh, I, I don't want to say he won, but these laws uh, were upheld in these 5-4 decisions going forward, they kind of abandoned the, the court packing plan, which of course was pretty controversial at the time. But this can't happen. What people don't realize is that the number of Supreme Court judges is not dictated by the Constitution. And in fact, when um, George Washington became the first president of the United States, he nominated 11 Supreme Court judges to the bench. But uh, legislation has changed the number of Supreme Court judges several times, but there's been as many as 11 Supreme Court judges on the bench. There's been as few as six, which is a weird number because, you know, you can get three, three decisions, which gets nothing accomplished. So I never understood why anyone ever uh, settled on six. But the point is that if there was a uh, Democratic victory in November for Joe Biden, and there was a Democratic takeover of the Senate, and of course, you'd have to repeal the filibuster, because I don't don't think that the the Democrats are going to get 61 seats in the Senate. But there's precedent. The, the filibuster rules existed for 200 years. Mitch McConnell repealed that rule because it only takes a simple majority vote if you're the party in control to remove the filibuster rule. I would remove the filibuster rule completely. I'd be done with it. Now, that was actually suggested a couple of weeks ago. And Mitch McConnell came out and said, no, you can't break away from tradition. The filibuster rule is an important uh, feature of the Senate that requires deliberation because he's willing to do whatever it takes to win. But he doesn't want the Democrats to play the same game. And he knows that if he criticizes them and says, well, that would violate constitutional norms or that would violate traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice, then Democrats back off. And and that's my fear. But if I was Biden and I had a 51 seat majority in the Senate or even 50-50 and I got the tiebreaker vote, I would do it the filibuster completely. I would push my. Senate to pass a law that increased the Supreme Court from nine to 14. I would then pack the court with uh, four additional young, young, 30-year-old liberal uh, judges, and I would invite the Republicans to continue to play that game. Because at that point, the entire existence of this nation is on the line. And then you have to ask, are they willing to push that forward? But like I said, this nation changed in a way that I don't think anyone saw. Uh, during the last term, uh, the last year of Obama's term, when Mitch McConnell decided to play politics with the Supreme Court and to not, for the first time in our nation's history, not allow a sitting judge to carry out their constitutionally mandated ability to choose a Supreme Court judge, to ignore that pick when Trump came into office, to remove the filibuster rule, to get Justice Gorsuch elected. To me, that was the end of this nation. It really was. And I, I know that that's an incredibly like powerful thing to say, but the way I see it, if the Republicans are allowed to do that and the Democrats don't respond in kind, it's the end of our nation because it means that there's only one party that's deciding who the judges are and what the laws are of this nation. And then, of course, the Democrats can respond in kind, but then you can't even get a judge appointed to the Supreme Court unless you have both. The, the, the party has both the White House and the Senate because as a Democrat, if I'm a Democratic Senate with a Republican person in the White House, I'm never going to sit your, 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 your justices. We've already created the precedent that you do not have to vote on a Supreme Court pick. McConnell invented that. Never happened before. He invented it. So, but that's now precedent. So if I'm a Democrat and you got a Republican in the White House, I'm never going to seat one of your judges and vice versa. And so in order for you to have a president choose a Supreme Court judge, you have to have both the White House and both the Senate, which creates what? Political judges, which means that we move away from the rule of law and we create that third political branch that I just said was so destructive to this nation. 
So I, be- I I said it, and I knew everyone thought I was crazy, but I said it when Obama's pick was blocked, that this is, this is going to be the trigger point of the actual downfall of this country, the destruction of it. And, and you know, who knows what it'll, it'll emerge into? Maybe something very similar? Maybe something better? I don't know. But I said it then because the Supreme Court has been the one branch of this government that has held this nation together for 200 years. Because when politics got in the way and we needed somebody to say what the law was and what the Constitution was and what the rules were, I mean, that's really what law is, right? What the rules are. When someone steps out of the balance, the Supreme Court's always said, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And now, whether you can do something or not depends on if you're a Republican or a Democrat. And that's fine when you're playing politics. It's not fine when you're the Supreme Court. Right. And so, again, people can keep saying that I'm you know, pulling the fire alarm unnecessarily. I believe that Obama having his, block, his nomination blocked, not because Obama didn't get to pick someone. But because the politics employed, and of course, how often, Ozzy, are you and I telling each other during the last four years that, wow, we've never seen that happen in this country. Wow, that's not the way that the Constitution has ever been viewed before as far as how government works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really stagger- it's, it's staggering. It's really, really troubling to me what has happened with these Supreme Court picks ever since Judge uh, Justice Scalia's passing. And um, I, I think that there's some consequences that need to be, that need to take place. And I think that it's gonna start with, uh, it should start with a court packing plan. And, and then if the Republicans continue to respond the way that they've responded the last four years, then I think that it's gonna be the ultimate demise of this uh, democracy, of this nation. Wow. Thank you for all that. That was definitely not in the in the cards to go as long as we did with this particular topic, but it is important to discuss. While this is not a political podcast, it is a law podcast, and the Supreme Court's the highest court in the land. So I felt that was necessary to talk about, and the only thing we can do is educate ourselves. That's right. And vote and, and make informed votes, because we have informed votes Hopefully the country we have for our children will be much better than the country we have now. So, moving on to Prop 21. <laughs> Proposition 21. A much more which, optimistic topic, right? Well, it's about giving power to local communities. Now, before we jump in, there's just some stats here. More than one in three people in California pay more than half their wages in rent. Most economists would tell you that rent should be only one-fourth of your monthly income. Minimum wage employee would have to work 92 hours every week to average a one bedroom, to afford rather, a one bedroom apartment. Rent increases in California are two times the national average, and 2,000 is the number of Los Angeles residents forced into homelessness with every 5% increase in rent. Now, and before we can get to Proposition 21, there are a few things that we should cover beforehand. The first being the 1995 Costa Hawkins Rental Housing Act. Now, this was passed in 1995 and was a statewide law that prohibited local communities from implementing rent control on any single family home or condo. It prohibited local communities from implementing rent control on any apartment built after 1995. And it also prohibited vacancy control, meaning landlords can raise the rent on a unit to pay any price after a rent control tenant moves out. So it also, some notes here that, Cities that already had rent control in 1995 were punished when this happened, and Los Angeles rent control in 1978. So they're one of the counties punished about this. And so basically, this stripped all power from local community. And one of the reasons behind this, it was to encourage more housing built in California. Uh, there is a belief that rent control was stymieing business construct or building construction. So this was in effort to attract more developers and to building homes and apartment complexes for those in the county. Not just in the past then. Costa Hawkins remains extremely popular in um, California. Uh, there's some very influential components of California politics that continue to to believe or at least 
portray local rent control laws uh, or Costa Hawkins as being a bill that is intended and does promote new home construction in the state of California. So uh, now in 2008, right after the housing crash, a ballot qualified for the election known as Proposition 98, where the landlord lobby had tried and failed to abolish all rent control in California. This would have created a free market rental scheme in California that would have allowed landlords to charge as much as they possibly could for rent rates. And that effort failed. Now with Costa Hawkins, it didn't completely do away with rent control. It, Absolutely. It, it provided several restrictions, oh, but so, it didn't well, completely do away with it. It definitely took uh, the ability of local communities to do any far-reaching rent control. But if you did not have rent control in 1995 when um, Costa Hawkins was passed, then you could put rent control in any building that, was, that could be occupied prior to or built prior to 1995. Again, as you mentioned, there was this weird, uh, no one really talks about this, but there was this weird rule written into Costa Hawkins that said if you already had rent control in your community, for example, you mentioned Los Angeles, one of the first communities to get rent control, they had they, they implemented it in 1978, that if you had it in 1995 when Costa Hawkins was passed, any building that was built after you implemented rent control was exempt from rent control. So in L.A., mm -hmm. They passed rent control in 1978. So any building built after seven, uh, 1979 or 1979 going forward in LA could not be subject to rent control. And uh, San Francisco followed LA and they passed rent control in 1979. So any building built 1980 and after in San Francisco cannot be subject to rent control. Uh, if you didn't have rent control in 1995, you could still implement rent control on all buildings that were built prior to 1995. So there was some level of rent control, but it was only for the oldest buildings. And if you were in a city that had rent control prior to or during the time that Costa Hawkins was passed, it was only subject to really old buildings. I see. So what the Proposition 98 was trying to do was completely rid any rent control. So even the older buildings would be subject to this free market. Correct. Scale. So. Yes, that was the attempt by the landlord industry to say, we don't even want these old buildings subject to rent control. We don't want any community in the state of California to even consider that as an option to deal with uh, homelessness or rising rent prices. We want every opportunity to make every penny possible through a basically a, a free market system, and no matter what the unit is, how old it is, where it is, et cetera. Or, or how bad the housing crisis is in a local community and how high the rents are raising. Gotcha. So in, after that effort failed, it was in 2017 that California Assemblymember Richard Bloom of Santa Monica introduced Assembly Bill 1506 to repeal Costa Hawkins. And the landlord lobby had worked furiously to stop the bill from moving to the floor by pressuring elected officials to vote AB 1506 down. The Repeal died by just one vote in the Assembly Housing Committee. So following that, in 2018, there is an actual attempt to attempt to completely repeal Costa Hawkins that was on the ballot of November 2018. That was Proposition 10, and that would have allowed local communities unlimited control, subject to constitutional limitations. And this measure also failed as well. Correct. So. so the, the 2018 law was the 2008 counterpart. So in 2008, Proposition 98 attempted to completely repeal any ability, uh, I'm sorry, completely eliminate any ability for local communities to do rent control. And then in 2018, because of the housing crisis reaching a, fe a fever pitch, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation by itself funded and proposed a Proposition 10 which would have done just the opposite. It would have eliminated any remnants of Costa Hawkins and allowed communities unlimited control to consider rent control measures. Right. So that now brings us to Proposition 21. And what Proposition 21 does is the following. It exempts individuals who own no more than two homes from new rent control policies. It amends state law to allow local governments to establish rent control on residential properties 
over 15 years. It allows local limits on annual rent increases to differ from current statewide limits. So, for example, Los Angeles can say 20 years old, but no one could say 10 because that is less than 15. It allows rent increases in rent-controlled properties of up to 15% over three years at start of a new tenancy, above any increase allowed by local ordinance as well. In accordance with California law, prohibits rent control from violating landlords' right to fair financial return. So that's a term. Is there <laughs> any sort of uh, chart or percentage or... No, there's not. I, I read the statute uh, that's being proposed. I, uh, by the way, Proposition 21 is also being funded by and promoted by the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. They're the only organization that's supporting the Proposition 21 effort. So this is an effort to present a new bill to the California voters uh, through the initiative process to try to repeal Costa-Hawkins, but it actually leaves some of the Costa Hawkins pieces in place. And so to answer your question directly, uh, the statute doesn't define what a fair financial return is, but it does say according to California law. So I have to use my assumption here, but my assumption here is, is that if this law passes, that California would control, when I say California, the legislators of California would create laws that would control what a fair financial return is. But what the statute does do is it requires that any landlord make a profit of some type on their investment, regardless of what local rent control laws state. So if a local rent control law uh, required a particular landlord to lose money on his investment, then there would have to be another matrix to allow him to assess the rental rate of his property at an amount above what his cost would be in doing business. So Again, these efforts in Proposition 21, it's to repeal most of what Costa Hawkins did, but leave in place some of the things that the public may believe made Costa Hawkins good, but also people who are mindful that we need to do something about the housing crisis here in California. Let's really quickly go over the other uh, pieces that you spoke about, because I think it's worth covering. So. Costa Hawkins says that rent control cannot exist on any building built after 1995. So no matter how many years pass, building was built after 1995, you can't put rent control on it. This does something a little different. It says that rent control cannot be put on any building that's 15 years old. So building just built, given a certificate of occupancy today, for 15 years, the landlord can reap whatever profits it can from that property. There's no ability to rent control that, that building. But after 15 years, the local communities can say, we want to put rent control in this building to help ease our uh, housing crisis in our local community. Now, as you also mentioned, let's say LA says, well, we want to exempt buildings that are new for 20 years or 25 years. They can adjust that upward. They can create a larger window of time for landlords to make a profit subject to whatever they can get, but they cannot reduce that 15-year period. So they can't say, well, 15 years is too long. We want to put rent control on buildings that are uh, uh, only anything after 10 years, and they can't do that. So it does provide some protections to, in theory, encourage new home construction in the state of California, which is supposedly why Costa Hawkins is so important. And then moving to the the other thing, I, again, take some explanation. There's two types of uh, rent control models that exist. And one's called moderate rent control, and the other is called strict rent control. And moderate rent control basically only restricts the landlord's ability to raise someone's rent after they rent a home. So they can rent a home at any amount they want to rent the home for. And then once someone rents that home uh, under moderate rent control, there's like an annual percentage that they can raise the rent and that's it. It stops there. But once that person vacates the unit, the landlord can re-rent the home at any price, whatever they can get for it. So under strict rent control, which is also called vacancy control rent control, not only is a landlord restricted from what they can raise the rent for on, a, on an existing renter, 
but they also are restricted on how much they can raise the rent on the next renter. So under Proposition 21, vacancy control is permitted, but there's a limit on it. So uh, vacancy control is capped at 15% of what the rent was over the last uh, three years. So it provides the local communities the ability to put in place in their local community rent control statutes, but they're not without limitation. Okay, so it seems like we've covered a lot of ground with uh, the ins and outs of Proposition 21 and its history of coming into fruition. So first, let's jump into those who oppose it. Uh, some of the members that are opposing it, our own Governor Gavin Newsom opposes it. And what's interesting are the, the particular unions that are against this. You have the con California Conference of Carpenters, the California District of Iron Workers, the State Association of Electrical Workers, the California State Pipe Trades Council, the State Building and Construction Trade Council of California. So these are obviously all unions that stand to benefit from minimal rent control in current communities. So it's not shocking to see their names on this particular list. And then there's several corporations that are opposed to this. You have Avalon Bay Communities, Equity Residential, Essex Property Trust, amongst, among others, also the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, which I think you would mentioned off-air that that could be in a completely another episode about <laughs> that one particular group. But uh, what's interesting is that you also have the California NCAACP, NAACP State Conference also opposing this. Any thoughts on that? It's obviously not a corporation or organization. Yeah, you know— Costa Hawkins, as I mentioned before, is still very popular in California. It actually was supported by Jerry Brown, which is why I, I believe that if uh, the assembly bill we discussed earlier actually had passed through Congress, it would have probably never been signed because there seems to be these different components of California politics and including the liberal left, people like Gavin Newsom, people who I actually really look to towards for guidance when um, you know I'm starting my research into whether or not I support a bill. And these people support Proposition uh, our Costa Hawkins and actually reject the fact that Prop 21 would help renters in California. And it's all based on one notion, and that is if Costa Hawkins is repealed, it's going to discourage new home construction in California. So Again, as you mentioned, the fact that all the union workers that are involved in building new homes would oppose a law that stymie new home construction makes sense. And for corporations, you know, many, I think everyone on this list I've sued on behalf of uh, tenants, Avalon Bay Communities, ASIC uh, Property Trust, these are all massively wealthy organizations that uh, contract with landlords to manage their properties. So again, people that you would definitely expect to see supporting the effort to keep Costa Hawkins in place. But you know, there's some names on there that are kind of curious and would lead you to think that this is really a, a pro-tenant bill. And like you mentioned, the California Council for Affordable Housing, they support Costa Hawkins staying the law of the land under this theory that if Costa Hawkins is repealed, there will not be new home construction, which means that people won't invest in building affordable housing for uh, community or there won't be enough uh, supply to bring the demand down. And also they say that because of the fact that landlords aren't making as much money, they will not invest in the existing homes and they'll become dilapidated. So when you see someone like the Affordable Housing Council on the list, or you see someone like the NAACP who are typically really concerned about housing issues, because they do affect uh, disproportionately always communities of color. It makes you wonder why you would want to oppose this. So I, we have several arguments here in, uh, in our notes, but I'll just read one of them from the Orange County Register Editorial Board. Proponent majorities of economic economists across the political spectrum have repeatedly criticized rent control for reducing the quality and quantity of housing. California's housing woes traced to our lawmakers and regulators who over the years have imposed a licensing, permitting, and construction regime that raises costs and makes home construction more difficult. 
Rent control would just add one more layer of complication to the process and demoralize key market participants unnecessarily. So this is basically saying it is already tough for new building because of all these regulations put in place and zoning codes and, and whatnot, I, I'm presuming. So it's, it's almost, it, it almost sounds to me like the argument is we should focus on these on these particular other regulations, but we're have, like, if that was truly an issue, why hasn't that been worked on in addition to Costa Hawkins? Like since 1995 is, is what seems interesting to me is that like, if this was really an experiment that start experiment and started in 1995, then after 10 years in 2005, there should have been, okay, well, it's not this, you know, this is the issue, but, it it just tells me that when you say, oh, no, that's not the issue, this is the issue, but that issue hasn't been addressed in 15 years, or d- rather 25, 25 years. But I mean 15 to say, I was just giving using my own example of saying how come in 10 years if, if you know we're not seeing what we need to see. So, yeah, I don't want to jump the gun on the, on the uh, opposition here or, or on the support here, but I think that the people like Gavin Newsom, the people like Jerry Brown, the people like the Jarvis Tax Association, these people have a really hard question to answer because I don't think there's an answer for it. Costa Hawkins was passed in 1995. There has been no massive new home construction in California since 1995. That's 25 years. And so they continue to say, well, California housing woes are traced to our inability to build new houses. Well, I agree with that. That's an issue. But What's a bigger issue right now, what's a critical issue in our communities, is the fact that homelessness is on the rise. You gave a statistic earlier that every single time that rent is raised, what was that statistic you said? 5% raise increase results in approximately 2,000 individuals forced into homelessness So in Los Angeles. You don't see that in any other state. You only see that here in California. So- Going back to even the discussion we had regarding uh, uh, Ginsburg's uh, passing, these types of inequalities in our community, people to get affordable housing, people to provide a safe place for their family lives, leads to communities being less safe, people being com- becoming desperate. And so I think that for the people that are coming out in, in opposition of Prop 21, really need to have an answer for if Costa Hawkins is such a great way to resolve this issue, to to eliminate the ability of local communities to decide whether or not rent control might be part of uh, their local solution. They need to explain why home construction is still dismally low in California. Well, it's, I mean, I, I know I wanted to spend more time on the opposition here for this, but a lot of the arguments kind of sound similar in that it's not the rent control issue, it's several other regulations. But again, to your point, it's been 25 years, so what's the deal? I'm, and I, I have a hard time believing somebody when they say something is an issue, when there hasn't been an active force in trying to change that issue. It's almost like it's convenient to say that this is the issue now. Um, so having said that, I think we're good and, to just jump in yeah, the, arg- the arguments in favor. Yeah, in favor. Let's let's jump there because here's the thing. We'd be having a whole different conversation if there was brand new home construction in California, there was a ton of new housing supply, and then they were trying to pass Prop 21 to allow local rent control statutes. And then we were saying, well, wait a minute. If we have passed this, all this we've accomplished in the last 25 years is going to go away. And that's mm-hmm. not what's happened. And there really is an issue in California with new home construction and, and really con- uh, any type of construction in California. When I was in middle school, Ozzy, when we approved the first bond measure for a high-speed rail here in California. At the time that we, we approved that measure, there wasn't a single high-speed rail in China. Since then, China has put more, in the last like 10 years, China has put more high-speed rails in its country and have more miles of rail than any other country combined. California has still built a few miles of railroad and pretty much is giving up on the project after spending billions of dollars 
because they can't get because of all the zoning rules and all the regulations. And again, this is coming from a liberal. I don't, I'm not saying that regulation shouldn't exist, but when there are so many regulations that you can't even get a railroad build across the state of California when everyone else in the world can get it done, there's a problem. And, you know, I was, Ozzy, do you know how long it took to build the Empire State Building? How long? 14 months. A and year and two months. A year and two months using technology that existed. In the 40s? Yes. <laughs> I hate I hate not knowing when the Empire State Building was not built or when it was. I hate not knowing that information. I'm going to do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what you normally do. I'm going to look it up. 1930 is 19... when it started construction. Okay, so in 1930, the Empire State Building was constructed in 14 months. I was talking to a landlord a couple weeks ago, not in, in the uh, scope of work, obviously. Uh, and he was telling me that, and I hear these stories a lot, that he was trying to build a 14-unit project for as a rental project. It was going to be a 14-unit, single-level uh, housing project. It took him seven years because of the different regulations, having to submit plans and resubmit plans, uh, all the uh, objections received from people in the community. Took him seven years to build 14 units as a rental property. I don't like landlords. I sue landlords. I am pretty much the last uh, 14 months have gone to war with landlords, but that's for a different reason. We need the ability to have access to home. If you can't build home, how do you get access to them? And so there is an issue here. But to keep pretending that rent control is the uh, is the illness that's preventing new home construction, we've had 25 years to resolve that issue, and 25 years later, with no rent control law to speak of uh, on any level in local government, we still have no new home construction. What this does, Ozzy, is it makes landlords richer. And the way it makes landlords richer is if there's no new home construction, then the demand for the homes that exist go way up. Mm -hmm. And that means that landlords can get more and more and more money for their rental properties. And do you think that landlords are taking those profits and reinvesting it into their uh, homes so that uh, renters can live in high quality housing? Because I can tell you from the calls that I get every single day, that's not happening. Because I got clients that are renting houses with a $4,000 a month price tag, and their landlords refuse to fix water leaks in the roof. They refuse to deal with pest control issues. They tell them to pay for them themselves. And when you're paying $4,000 a month, and this, you know, this particular example is in a nicer community for a home, you think that the landlord would spring for pest control, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because the law requires it. And tenants would not have to get lawyers like me involved to go sue the landlord. So it's a two-part issue here. You got these landlords that are making obscene amount of profit margins on these homes because there is no home construction and because there's no rent control law to prohibit them from providing this required service. It's a required thing that everyone needs. Everyone needs a place to live. And so if you can't buy a house, your only option is to go to a landlord and rent a home. And so these landlords, most of them, the vast majority, not subject to rent control, are able to rent these homes, and they get these obscene profit margins. And then, from what I see, especially when you got ASICs involved and all these other uh, management companies, they sit there and they try to save every penny possible, so they're not responsive to the needs of their tenants. And then, a, a, another side note, because we're going to do an episode on this when we finish our proposition series. They steal their damn security deposit. And it's an issue that exists in such a alarming number of situations. I mean, Ozzy, I don't know if you've ever had an issue when you moved out and you had your uh, security deposit unfairly taken from you, but it does massive harm to people who are already paying rents that are far too high. And then they're trying to move from one place to another, and they're and they do everything they need to do in order to earn the right to re receive their security deposit, then they move out, and then they're told by usually a landlord agency. These, Admittedly, these issues are, are less prominent when there's an individual 
uh, running their own property. But when they say, oh, we're going to take 90% of your security deposit, and there's no legal basis for it. And almost every single time I've sued a landlord for the return of a security deposit, almost every single case, the lawyer defending the landlord admits to me outright, yeah, your client shouldn't have their security deposit taken from them. And so, again, this is really material for a new episode, but I have declared war on landlords in California who steal security deposits from their clients. Uh, that's, after- why I, that's why I gave you the, the movie trailer title, Attorney at Law, in a world where landlords run wild. Sorry. I want you to start every new episode with a trailer based on the content. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so I, uh, I don't know that um, local rent control is the answer. There, there are some really big problems that need to be solved here. When uh, Gavin Newsom was stumping for his run for governor, I met him. And it was two conversations that I had with them. One was about payday lending uh, with Indian casinos. But the other was about housing. And I, I challenged him on some of the attacks that my, my liberal friends had regarding Gavin Newsom about how he treated homeless people in San Francisco. But it was also my message to him was the number one crisis that you have to deal with during your first term as governor is the California housing crisis. Now, obviously, when I said that, I didn't know COVID-19 was going to happen. So <laughs> he's really not had the ability to concentrate on anything more than that. But, you know, COVID-19 is an example of why housing is so important. Because when you're telling people to shelter in place, because if you don't, you could spread a deadly virus across the state. How do you shelter in place when you can't afford your rent? How do you shelter in place when you can't afford to rent a place? Mm-hmm. So, you know, all these components kind of come together. But the bottom line is, Local communities know better what helps solve their cri- uh, housing crisis issue than people in Sacramento. And the fact that we have taken the opportunity away from local communities to even explore rent control of any type, I think is criminal. I think that it unfairly boasts the profits of landlords while it pushes tons of people into homelessness. And I don't think that increasing the profits of landlords is a sufficient reason to require people to live in homelessness. So there's different things that I think need to be done here. The problem, obviously, is new home construction. I agree with that. You want to pass a proposition that opens the floodgates for new home construction? Let's start talking about that conversation. I'm willing to have it with you. But you're telling me that local communities, even subject to the limitations put into Prop 21, can't even explore the ability to put in place rent control laws to see if it helps with their housing crisis. And of course, if they don't, they can simply repeal them. But, but at Sacramento, least they have the ability to do so. And it doesn't come from one centralized place to say, no, you can't do this. Uh, ultimately, sorry to cut you off, but ultimately I think that's what it comes down to is you or I don't have a right to tell somebody in Kern County, California, what kind of restrictions they can or can impose. Just like, I don't have a right. I mean, I don't believe I have a right to tell people in where you are, Imperial County, what what they can do. And I don't think you have a right to tell people in Orange County what they, like, just that, I mean, for me, that's what I'm hearing is, is, is that Costa Hawkins is a giant blanket that takes something away from local municipalities. And I think even the, no matter what side you're on, taking power away from a community doesn't sound right. It doesn't. And uh, so I'm actually in San Diego County, not Imperial County. But oh, I apologize. Close no, enough. no. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Imperial County because I think there's a great comparison that we can make between Imperial County, which is the next county over, with San Diego County. When I first moved to San Diego County, it was to go to law school. It was in 2009. I was able to rent a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment in San Diego County for $950. I think it was like $955 a month. That same apartment, because I just sued them recently, I happen to know, cost over $1,700 a month to rent. That is a 100% increase in rent in that unit in less than 10 years. Now, to put all the cards on the table, the building was recently 
renovated and upgraded, but not to the extent that it would justify a 950-someone dollar rent increase over the course of simply 10 years. That, mm-hmm. that, that's obscene. San Diego is a community that may want to consider rent control. I don't know if they're going to want to implement it, but they may want to consider it. But a community like Imperial County, which is uh, Central California, but like uh, San Diego, sits on the California-Mexico border and actually butts up against uh, California to the to the west. It is a community that, while large, doesn't appear from the knowledge that I have because I almost you know consider taking a public defender job there many years ago that the rents were still pretty low and there was uh, the an abundance of available housing. So. The a county like Imperial may have no desire to implement rent control or a community like like Bakersfield, whether uh, they're having a housing crisis or not. I don't know. But it does. It is. We all know is a more conservative community. And as a conservative community that typically uh, favors free market, they should have the ability to say whether we need it or not. We reject it. We don't want it. We want landlords to be able to utilize their properties to the full extent possible. But for other communities like Los Angeles or San Francisco or San Diego, which are much more densely populated, that have ever-increasing homeless problems. I I used to work in downtown San Diego. My building, my office building was two blocks from the courthouse. I could not walk from my office building to the courthouse with saying no to at least a dozen people asking for change. Because there's that kind of homelessness in San Diego, uh, homelessness that actually just recently, right before COVID, escalated into a massive outbreak of hepatitis because of all the people using the restroom in the streets. Mm-hmm. So in a community that's got housing issues to that extent, because people who have jobs are living on the streets, we can't even consider rent control as a possible alternative to or as a possible solution. And I don't think it would even be a solution, but a partial solution to this issue. I think, let's just say it's a lot of audacity for someone like Gavin Newsom, who who I generally support, to come out and say, we don't need this. A lot of audacity for all the politicians to say that we in Sacramento should tell all the local communities what mechanisms they can uh, consider to resolve local issues. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest takeaway if anything at all, from this. And with whoever's listening to this, I mean, it's important to do your own research as well. Don't take one source of information and and say, well, did that for Proposition 21. Listen to that guy and that lawyer. I'm good now. That's not the case. Please continue to do your research to give yourself the most informed opinion and allowing you to have a smart vote this coming November. Before we leave, Andre, do you have any final thoughts regarding this? I mean, personally, for me, I see it as a case of local control, and that's something that I'm in favor of. So despite what opponents are saying, like, hey, then work on those particular regulations, but uh, you can't convince me to, to say I have a right to tell somebody in another community what they can or can't pass or not pass. So that's my take on it. Uh, yeah, I, I joined that completely. Again, I, I don't know that rent control is the answer. I'm willing to let local communities explore that. So uh, I'm a firm yes vote on Proposition 21. But because, you know, this is a law podcast, and so, you know, it, we decided to start with this really important proposition series, and I'm glad we did, and I hope that we continue to do these types of podcasts during the election cycle uh, so that people can get a, a different look and we can break down the particular statutes and and digest them into little bite-sized pieces or put them into little digestible bite-sized pieces because of the fact that this is politics mixed with law uh i i just want to join your message this is one perspective uh we're trying to give you a very black and white uh look at what the law states and then some perspective as to how uh, based on your life experiences and my life experiences how we feel that these laws would affect our community. The, all this information that we've discussed, the voter pamphlets contain the statute of the text. Uh, you could easily type the proposition into a Google search browser or any other search browser and uh, get this stuff off, off Ballotpedia. But um, I, I just want to join your 
sediment in this are I just want to join your remarks that because this is a political slash legal issue that um, and we're talking about not just our legal opinions, but our uh, our political opinions that I think it's really important for you to uh, to highlight that. And I appreciate that you do. You know, this is one source. Go out there, do your research. And if we have questions or if you have a, uh, a response that differs from ours, send it to Ozzy. We'll read it here yeah. on the air. We got an email set up for that. Yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, that's yourlawpod at gmail.com. Send in a response. You can send in some questions that we could read on the air as well. Well, having said that, that was the next thing I was going to plug was going to be the email. But now that we have that out of the way, I just like to say that feel free to join us next week for another discussion in our California Proposition series. I'm Ozzy V. And he's Andre Verdun, attorney at law. Have a good night, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week.